Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning we are beginning a new series of studies in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth, as you know, is slipped in between Judges and 1 Samuel, and we'll hear a little more about the context in a moment or two, but we begin at chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of His people by providing food for them, 
Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you and to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. At times we're tempted to think of Ruth as this wonderful, romantic story about Ruth and Boaz. And you're going to hear about Boaz in a couple of weeks. And so we're tempted to think, and you'll find this over the next couple of weeks, you'll ask yourself now, who is the central character in the book of Ruth? And you may well be saying, now, Richard, I've heard you already talk about Elimelech and Ruth and Mahlon and Kilion and Oprah. Who is the central character in the book? Is it Boaz, who we'll meet in a couple of weeks? He's, for all intents and purposes, the hero of the book. And if you're asking that question and trying to get the characters organized in your mind, please hear and understand this. The central character in the book of Ruth is God Himself. And that's the case with every book of the Bible, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Your question should consistently be, where is God in this passage? What is He doing? Are there signs of His love and His grace and His faithfulness and his equipping of his children whom he's calling to himself. So throughout these Sundays, hold on to that cardinal principle of interpretation that God is the central character of the book. Now, of course, some of you are ahead of me slightly and when you read, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And your spiritual antenna are up already, and you're listening for signals, because you're immediately thinking, oh, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, what is going on here? Bethlehem means house of bread. And so when you read that opening verse, you think, now, wait a minute. There was a famine in the land in the very town that means house of bread. What is going on here? 
And you're wise to have your spiritual antenna up, listening for what is taking place, because there's a great deal more taking place than first appears. And as you know, of course, there was a famine in the land. Elimelech, Naomi, with her two sons, left and headed for Moab. And no sooner has the book started than you hear that Elimelech has passed away, and the two sons get married, and then in very short order, Mahlon and Kilian also die. Now, if you have ever found yourself in those circumstances, when out of the blue you have lost a spouse, that is very, very difficult to live with. And if you have lost a spouse and then children, you will know the overwhelming, mind-numbing sadness that comes when grief washes over you and you can't function and you can't think straight and you don't know what to do and you are asking yourself, what on earth is happening and why would the Lord do this to me? What is going on here? In the midst of all of that debilitating, crippling sadness, and you pray and pray and pray, and there seems to be no answer, especially in those early days of acute sadness. And you're struggling mentally, emotionally, psychologically. That is a tough place to be. That is a hard place to be. Now, take it a step further. Not only did Elimelech travel with Naomi, but he is now dead, and she loses her two sons. And think back of the grief that is overwhelming Naomi. Naomi will never have the opportunity to have grandchildren over for a sleepover. Her hands will never be opened wide with a big smile when wee ones are coming and running towards her. Gran, I love you, and jumping into her arms. She'll never have them to sit on her knee and begin to tell a story. Once upon a time, there lived three bears. She'll never have that chance. Who on earth is she going to make cookies for now? There are no wee ones to fill full of sugar and then hand them back to their parents. And you think, at last, I've got revenge. That will not happen. And you can imagine the grief and the tears as she goes to sleep at night thinking, what on earth is going on? Why would God allow this to happen to me? What is happening here? And so she takes her two daughters-in-law They come to a decision, and for all of the tragedy, debilitating, crippling sadness of those first five verses, when you get to verse 6, things begin to change. And they begin to change when you read these words. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of His people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back 
to the land of Judah. Now, what comes next is a conversation filled with tears between Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. And Naomi said, go back to where you came from. Go back to your mother's house, to the village where you were brought up. You may find husbands there. Because even if I got married this evening, would you wait till I then have sons and then watch them grow up and then marry them? And of course, it's silliness. She's laying out the logic and the rationale behind her action, and they see it immediately. And Orpah again breaks down in tears, and there's tears everywhere, and they're hugging, and eventually Orpah goes off, and you'll discover next week what happens to Ruth. So make sure you tune in again next Sunday morning and be here to see what happens to Ruth. But the change here is very, very subtle. And it comes in verse 7. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, why is that important? It's important for this reason. That the Hebrew verb, shob, is found ten times in this opening chapter. And you know enough to know this, that whenever an author of a book of the Bible says something, then says it again, and says it again, and says it again, and says it again, they're drawing your attention to something important. Now, they did not have, obviously, the word processing skills and equipment we have today. They can't underline it. They can't highlight it in yellow. They can't put it in parenthesis. They can't write in capitals. They're trying to get your attention through repetition. And the English translation doesn't do it justice because the New International Version translators are using different words for the same principle and concept. And so when they say return in verses 6, 7, 8, 10, 16, and 22, they're telling you, watch out, something's happening. When they say turn back in verses 11 and 12, and then later in the chapter, verse 15, gone back, and then verse 21, brought back, what they're telling you is this, that the word, the Hebrew verb, not only means return, it means repentance as well. And both the Old and New Testament, when the word repentance is used, it means this, you're heading in a particular direction. And then God impacts the heart and mind and soul. He calls you, and you respond to His love and grace. You then turn and move towards Him. You return to His love and His grace, and you submit and surrender your life to Him. That's the significance of the language. And the same word for repentance and return is captivated in ten occasions. So what the Bible reader, excuse me, what the writer of Ruth is telling us is this, that eventually Ruth is now with Naomi and heading back towards the love and grace and goodness of God that's what's happening. So, those first six verses were devastating with tragedy, difficult to grasp, even worse trying to live with. But then in verses 6 and 7, 
things are about to change. And so, of course, our spiritual antenna is up, and they should be. But notice what else that Naomi says. You'll see it the second part of verse 13. She writes, would you come with me? Would you remain unmarried till they grew up? And then at verse 13, the second half of the verse, she says, no, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Now, understand what's taking place here. Naomi isn't simply blaming the tragedy and circumstances on the difficulties she's encountered in Moab. That, of course, is blatantly true. But Naomi is reading beyond the circumstance. And what does she say? She says, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. And in God's sovereign purposes, bring to pass His purpose and will, He is working in and through the difficulties and the tragedies that Naomi is facing. Now, you may be sitting here this morning and saying, okay, Richard, I know you only read to verse 13, but is that it? Is that where you're going to leave us this morning? I was sitting back enjoying the story of Ruth. I enjoyed hearing about Naomi. I enjoyed hearing about Elimelech and Machlon and Kilion. And that's it. You're sending us home at verse 13. My life is bitter, and the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Is that all you've got this morning? Please don't tell me that's all you've got. Well, if that in any way describes you, and you find yourself back into a corner asking yourself, what on earth is God doing in my life? And if you have found yourself in similar difficulties, when it's been one thing after another after another, and you do not know how to respond, please listen to these closing five minutes. This is just for you this morning. Now, I'm conscious that there are some of us here this morning who have a spouse wrestling with dementia, and you do not know what to do. And you never imagined that after 50 years of married life, it would end this way. And you are so frustrated. You are so hurt. The pain is almost palpable in your home. It is the first thing you think about when you waken in the morning. It is the last thing you think about when you go to sleep at night. Or it may be you have lost a spouse recently, and they passed away, and you weren't ready for that. It may be that a grandparent or a child is wrestling with cancer, and you're thinking, what on earth have I done to deserve this? And where is God in the midst of all of this? Richard, come on, give me something to hold on to this morning. My life has definitely not worked out the way I prayed and hoped for and planned for. What is going on here? Or it may be as extreme of losing not simply one child, but two. And the sadness at times is unbearable, and it has a crippling, debilitating, 
overwhelming effect on your life. And if that described you this morning, and mentally there is no release, you are living with it day after day after day, and there is never a moment when it is not going through your mind. Please hear this. The Apostle Paul is writing 900 years after the book of Ruth. Two centuries ago, he writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And you may be sitting there this morning and saying, Richard, hold on, take that back, because I, I'm just not going along with the premise. Do not be anxious about anything. Does Paul, does he have the faintest idea what he's asking? Do not be anxious about anything. Are you kidding me? All that I've been through, Richard, I need more than platitudes. I need something with gravitas. I need something I can take home. This is not going to do it. Paul clearly didn't know what he was talking about. Now, let me push back a little. Remember who is writing. It's the Apostle Paul. He's writing in the year 65 to 66 AD. He's writing from a Roman prison cell. He's about to go on trial for his life. He may, in fact, end up facing an executioner. So when he writes, do not be anxious about anything, he knows exactly what he's saying. Don't you think that that would be running through his mind day after day after day? Don't you think he'd be anxious and concerned? Of course he would. But what is happening here is this, that the supernatural work of God is flowing through him, and he's sensing the peace and the comfort and the presence of God dwelling within him through his Holy Spirit. And what Paul is telling us is this, you will either present your request to God with prayer and thanksgiving, or you're going to hold on to them and live with them the rest of your days. Folks, you have some choices here. When Paul writes, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and then leave them there. Now, let me explain what I mean. Either your thoughts will control you or you will control them which is it to be? Now, that is not easy, because it's easy at this time to say, take those burdens, take those cares, take those sadnesses, present them to the Lord, leave them there, and as you leave this morning, go home set free. But 90% of us will come back through the pulpit, pick them up, and leave with them. If there is nothing you can do about them and they are outside of your control, you can trust Him to deal with them. 
you can submit and surrender those thoughts to Him. Father, I can't control them. I can't deal with them. I've no way of influencing their outcome, so I'm leaving them entirely in your hands. And what does Paul then add? And then, what does he say? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, please hear me. That is possibly one of the hardest things you will ever do. And it begins with a small step in that direction. It begins recognizing, Father, I can't deal with them. They are too much for me. I am leaving them with you. But hear this. Oh, it feels so much better to pick them up again and hold on to them. Because that's our behavioral pattern. That's what we're used to. That's where we get comfort. That's when we are in control. Because we can control our anxiety. We can control our imagination. We can control those thought processes. But if we leave them with the Lord, what on earth are we going to do? Do you see the point? It is so much easier to live the way we've always lived rather than bring them and leave them and trust Him to deal with them. Yes, we can. That's the point He's making. Because what we know is this. We know what in the year 990 BC Naomi did not know. We know that in the midst of the tragedy and difficulty and the mind-numbing sadness, God was still at work. And please hear me when I say this, He is not finished with you yet. And you can bring them together, take them to Him, leave them there, and hold on to His promises. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And how do we know? How can we be sure? How can we leave this morning free, excited, delighted in all that God is doing for this reason? How often have we said it in Sunday mornings in the last couple of years that the same moral and supernatural Holy Spirit that brought Christ back from the dead now lives in and through you, and He can be depended on, and you can trust Him to do it. You have some choices this morning. You can begin to control that part of your life or it will begin to control you. And as you leave this morning, leave determined, committed to submit and surrender all aspects of your life to His rule and His reign, and you can leave them with Him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this incredible passage of Scripture this morning. Thank You for its challenge to us, but also thank You for the incredible, overwhelming comfort that it brings us. 
Father, you know each one of us much better than we know ourselves. And so, Father, we submit and surrender to you afresh this morning. Grant us wholeness. Grant us contentment. But most of all, allow us, please, to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.